Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter of 1 Peter, chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Do not adorn yourselves outwardly by braiding your hair and by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing. Rather, let your adornment be the inner self, with the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. It was in this way long ago that the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You have become her daughters as long as you do what is good, and never let fears alarm you. Husbands, in the same way, show consideration for your wives in your life together, paying honor to the woman as the weaker sex, since they too are also heirs of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing may hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire life, and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil, and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil, and do good. Let them seek peace, and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. The word of God for the people of God. And all of God's people say thanks be to God. Author of life, 
we thank you for your word, and we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. So we're back once again with the letter called First Peter. Now, this is by no means a long book in the Bible. It's only five chapters in total, and today has brought us to the end of chapter 3. But what we have seen so far in these few chapters is that this is a letter rich in symbolism and allusions to other scriptures. We've so far seen believers compared to obedient children and living stones. We've heard references to Isaiah, the Psalms, and Hosea. We've been reminded of the promises made by God and received instructions as to how we should live our lives. Today, we heard much more about those instructions, which I talked about last week. We heard even more about how we aren't to return abuse for abuse, but instead that we are to be a blessing to those who cause us to suffer. And so, we can see that these ethical instructions are the heartbeat of this letter. It's fine and well to receive these instructions, but we all know that receiving an instruction like this and living it out are two very different things. It's one thing to tell someone in theory, do the right thing in every single instance, no matter what. It is another thing entirely to then actually do the right thing in every instance. Let me give you an example from when I was in grade school of what I mean. There were two major programs we had when I was growing up to teach us to stay away from drugs. D.A.R.E. and McGruff the Crime Dog. The D.A.R.E. program was almost entirely about teaching kids how to just say no if their friends asked them to do drugs or drink or smoke cigarettes with them. But D.A.R.E. also wasn't above using a little fear to keep people in line. I remember in the hallways of our middle school a display case that showed a shirt with a pair of handcuffs on it and one of Dare's slogans from the time, Do drugs, get free jewelry. Basically, you should do what is right because otherwise you'll end up in jail. Then, in our music class, we would sing along with McGruff as he told us how to stay out of danger. Now, McGruff wasn't above using shame to scare us away from drugs, but as a testament to the power of song, I can still remember that users are losers, losers are users, don't use drugs, don't use drugs. Or, in other words, you should do what is right, otherwise no one will like you. Now, these are just some examples of the way that the secular world understands that doing what is right all the time is a different thing than asking someone to do what is right all the time. And the answers that those programs came up with were to keep people in line through personal responsibility driven by fear and shame. But what about the Christian answer? to how you get people to do what is right. We get that at the very tail end of today's reading. 
It's not based on our own personal ability to withstand trial. It's not driven by a sense of fear or a sense of shame. The Christian answer to how we find the strength to withstand suffering and trials is by God's grace, particularly as expressed in baptism. What Peter says is that Christ died on the cross, suffering for the righteous and the unrighteous once and for all. When he did this, he not only died for those who were yet to come, but also went and made a proclamation to those who did not obey in the days of Noah. When God sent the flood, eight people were saved from the waters of the flood. But that was simply a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of the waters of baptism, which would save all who believe. The flood of Noah was a destruction of the world as it was in order to save the goodness in humanity. The waters of baptism are a destruction of the sinful nature within each of us in order to save the goodness of our own humanity. Now because Peter is speaking to a Jewish audience, they're already part of the covenant with God. What this means is that for the audience of 1 Peter, baptism is, in essence, a renewal of the covenant to which they have already been called. But for those of us who are Gentiles, we have to draw Paul into this conversation because he helps us understand how baptism expands the covenant to all peoples. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. In other words, once you enter into the waters of baptism, the labels that you used to identify yourself before are no longer the dominant label. The boundaries of the world melt away so that we all find ourselves as equals on the other side of the baptismal water. We all enter into the promises of God through Christ Jesus. Now this will undoubtedly raise some questions. Questions like, what if a person can't be baptized? Or especially common, what happens if a child dies before they're baptized? So it may be helpful for us to get into some old-school language about God's grace. Baptism is one of the ordinary means of God's grace, which we also call one of the ordinances of God. The ordinances of God are those means of God's grace by which we know God to normally or ordinarily work. They are the means of grace identified in the scriptures, which we in the Wesleyan tradition would also tend to associate with works of piety. Therefore, we know that God's grace works through the sacraments of baptism and communion, as well as through prayer, fasting, and the study of scripture. But as John Wesley helpfully reminds us in his sermon on visiting the sick, the ordinances of God are not the only way. For God's grace to be at work in the world. So it is possible for someone to die without having been baptized and God's grace to still work in their lives. 
just as it is possible for God's grace to work through communion in the life of someone who's not been baptized, even though it's ordinary for a person to experience God's grace the other way around. Or right now, when there's anxiety about our inability to gather together and share in communion, we know that God's grace is still at work by extraordinary means. Our inability to participate in the outward signs of inward grace will never stop God's grace from being at work. All of which is a meandering path to bring us back to that first question. What answer does Christianity have to the question, how does a person do what is right for the sake of righteousness? The answer is, of course, God's grace. The ordinary means by which we enter into that grace is by entering into the family of Christ through baptism. But we know that God's undivided grace moves in such a way that it precedes every good we do. God's grace is constantly seeking to draw us further into a life of discipleship. God's grace is constantly seeking to empower us to do what is right. If we were on our own, if our righteousness depended on the justness of our own hearts, if our righteousness depended on the ability of our own actions, then we would all fall short. But we're not on our own. We are made in the moral image of our Creator, who strengthens us when we are weak, who comforts us when we are wounded, and who encourages us when we are wavering. Amen. Would you please pray with me? God of grace and glory, grant us your strength when we are in need. Empower us to live lives of holiness. Fill our hearts with love for you and for our neighbors. Amen.